here at the podcast. This is your host, Ezra Siddiqui. As a reminder, Wise Up Text is my platform to inform the South Asian community about Texas and national politics. You can find us on all forms of social media, such as Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, our handles at WiseUpTX. You can check out our podcast on uh, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and iTunes. Um, look for at WiseUpTX. You can also check out our website, www.wiseuptx.com. And last but not least, you can listen to our segments on Radio Azad and Coffee Mornings with Aisha on Monday mornings. Remember, everyone, let's get educated, let's get wiser, and let's start giving a hoot. All right, folks, it's been a few weeks since our last segment. I'm here to give you all an update of what's happening on the Texas legislative session. Um, as we spoke in the, our last podcast seg- segment, which was with my boss, Comptroller Hager, um, about property taxes and public school finance, um, those bills are still going through the legislative session. It seems like the Texas Democrats have come out with their own uh, legislative proposal, which is $14.5 billion uh into school finance, and this would include all-day pre-K, teacher raises, and property tax relief. Um, I will say that the chances of this passing are pretty slim since they don't have a majority in the House and Senate, but perhaps uh, when they they will be able to come to a compromise between the House and the Senate Republicans to maybe incorporate some of this um, these ideologies into the overall package. But I guess we'll have to wait and see until May to see how that pans out. Um... Moving on to other things that are happening um, legislatively, it seems that there is a bill for property tax reform um, to cut the rollback rate to 2.5%, but that's not seeming to gain a lot of traction, especially from rural uh, representatives. Um, So it'll be interesting to see if that also plays out um, and passes in May, as it is one of the governor's top priorities. And last but not least, the Texas Secretary of State, David Whitley, who was um, put into his position by Governor Abbott, is not being confirmed by the Senate. And if he's unable to be confirmed in the next few weeks, it looks like Governor Abbott is going to have to appoint someone else. All right, that's the Texas news. Moving on to federal news Um, for election season 2020. It seems like Bernie Sanders has entered the race, and it seems like this time he's going to be a front runner. I think it's pretty interesting that some of the ideas that he had back in 2016 are now Um, mainstream ideas within many of the Democratic Party candidates, uh, such as not taking PAC money, um, such as, you know, Medicare for all. And so it'll be interesting to see if Bernie Sanders can remain a front runner within the Democratic Party race, um, given that many of the candidates who are younger or people of color or females um, have adopted many of his platform ideas. So I think uh, this should get interesting. But I don't know about y'all, it seems like it's still really, really, really early, and I feel like we have a long ways to go. Um, So I hope y'all are starting to think about um, some of the issues that are really important to you that you're going to be looking into um, for who you want to vote for in 2020. All right. In other news, we will be rolling out a newsletter sometime soon. If you would like to get it, um, please visit our website, wiseuptx.com, and go to the contact page and leave your information, and and you can put in the box with the newsletter. We'll be giving more details about some of the legislation that's been passing on the Texas level um, and giving a little bit more detailed overview than some of the things that we talk about in the podcast. All right, folks. 
We have another interview today. Um, as you all know, February is Black History Month. And so in honor of Black History Month, we have an interview with Anirvan Chatterjee. And Anirvan is a techie and storyteller from Berkeley, California. He's passionate about sharing stories of our community in this country. He helps run the Berkeley South Asian Radical History Walking Tour, where they use storytelling and street theater to bring alive the history of South Asian activists in the San Francisco Bay Area. They've run 162 tours in the past six years, making it one of the most popular tours of the city. Today, we're talking to him about Black Desi secrethistory.org, his website featuring images of the 100-year history of South Asian and African-American solidarity. And I hope you all find, will find this interview as fascinating as I did. Um, it wasn't until I came across his website, blacktheysecrethistory.org, did I realize that the solidarity um, connections between South Asians and African-Americans here in America um, has gone way back before I was even born, before my parents had even immigrated to this country. And it was really, really fascinating for me to learn this history that, especially if it wasn't for the civil rights movement and for African Americans fighting for equality, South Asians would not have the same rights as we do today. And so please, uh, you know, listen to this podcast segment with just in awe of the fact that there is so much history of our community, of our culture here in America that we are so unaware of that have um, made the inroads and the possibilities that we currently have today possible. Well, Anirvan, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. So, do you mind giving my listeners a broad overview of the civil rights movement in America and how you came about doing this really, um, this really awesome project about showcasing how the civil rights project had an impact on the South Asian American community? Yeah, so when we say the civil rights movement in the U.S., um, we're mostly talking about that period between, say, the mid-1950s to the late 1960s, around 1970, when uh, primarily African Americans were um, uh, rising up uh, for the right to vote, to end uh, segregation, to end a lot of uh, government policies of discrimination, and also pushed back against um, racial terrorism, where community members were being uh, victimized, often very physically assaulted, sometimes lynched. Mm-hmm. And um, these these movements during the civil rights era, they used um, primarily nonviolent tactics, uh, media-based tactics, just uh, protests, just different kinds of activism. And that movement, it really changed the face of America. Okay, and so how did you come about like, um, you know, this month is Black History Month, right? And how did you come about this project that you started doing? You know, you started making these um, graphics um, showcasing some of the different South Asians um, that either have had an influence over the civil rights movement or have actually taken part of the civil rights movement. Um, How did you come about doing this project as a whole? So I grew up in the U.S., and my parents immigrated from India in the 1970s. And the way that I was taught history in my community or at home, it was all about 
growing up in the homeland and the history of my parents and my family and what was happening in India. And it wasn't until much later that I started really realizing that uh, as Indian Americans, as South Asians more broadly, we actually have centuries of history in this country. Really? And it, I mean, from the 1600s onwards, and it just totally blew my mind because for me, the day, like my history in this country began with the day my parents got off a plane. Right. And going to school, growing up in the U.S., um, I would learn about things like the civil rights movement, and it was important, but it, it didn't really feel like it had a whole lot to do with me directly. Okay. And it wasn't until, say, my parents started to, you know, talking about, like, how uh, activists like Dr. Martin Luther King were learning from and building on the work of um, nonviolent civil disobedience activists like uh, Mahatma Gandhi, that it started to actually kind of get a sense of what those connections would look like. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't until later that actually, as I started doing some reading, um, that I realized that those connections are way broader than only uh, Dr. King and Gandhi. Okay. Uh, certainly during the civil rights movement, there were um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, black activists from well before Martin Luther King um, who were uh, talking to, talking to um, activists in India, talking to freedom fighters in India, um, in many cases traveling to India, and um, learning tactics. But some of these earliest histories, I mean, they go back over a century. And a lot of these stories that are documented in books and some you know, really amazing works of history. Okay. But for me, the biggest challenge is that uh, these history books, I mean, they're read by academics and scholars and students and people who are actually studying history, but they're not really accessible to normal people who don't, you know, who aren't necessarily spending time reading academic history books. So some of the work that I've been doing is taking these histories of South Asian and Black um, solidarities over the last century and really trying to make them a lot more accessible so people can just learn about them more easily. And a couple of years ago, I put them together in a website called the Black Desi Secret History dot org, mm-hmm. which is all about that um, hundred year uh, history of African Americans standing with our communities and our communities standing with African Americans. Okay, wow, awesome. So, you know, let's let's kind of stick right now with the civil rights movement. So, how do you think the civil rights movement impacted our community, the South Asian community? So I would argue that um, South Asian America would not exist um, the way we know it really wouldn't exist without the civil rights movement. So um, for, I mean, although South Asians have been in the U.S. since um, the, literally the 1600s, mm-hmm. they were, um, as of the middle part of the last century, there were only thousands of people from South Asia in the U.S. and from 1946 onward, only 100 people from countries like India were allowed in every year. Oh, wow. So it was there was like a, a quota? Tiny, yes. Um, it was just this like tiny trickle. There was a lot of uh, anti-Asian sentiment. Um, there were mob attacks against um, groups of South Asians who lived in the United States. So it was often a really dangerous time, and that made itself felt in anti-immigrant uh, legislation. Um, and the Civil Rights Movement was important because it not only fought for the rights of African Americans, but on a much larger level, it was actually fighting a lot of the racist um, laws that covered a lot of different parts of the United States government. So 
um, some of the major victories of the Civil Rights Movement included things like the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, uh, fighting housing discrimination. But one of the things that really impacts us was the fact that this activism led in part to the 1965 immigration reforms. Okay. And the, the, the 1965 immigration reforms, those are the one, that's a set of laws that changed things that actually started allowing us to come into this country. And this actually, black activism had two things to do with it. So one part of it was really pushing the U.S. government, embarrassing the U.S. government into uh, really taking on some of these really racist policies around immigration mm-hmm. um, and making clear that um, uh, that people of color um, should and, and must have um, equal rights in this country. And the immigration reforms were in part a reaction to that. To that. The second part of that was the fact that uh, black activism in the U.S. was also embarrassing the U.S. government overseas because this is during the Cold War era. Right. So when the U.S. government would talk to um, uh, countries around the world, including uh, folks from the Global South, including third world countries, um, non-aligned countries, it was an embarrassment, a global embarrassment that African-Americans were second and third class citizens. Uh And um, so that was um, that embarrassment was another factor why um, the United States government in 1965 decided that they were going to actually change up the immigration laws and not make not just African-Americans, but other people of color um, around the world uh, have some kind of like equal access to um, uh, immigration to the United States. But basically what that means is that uh, um, in 1965, the laws changed and we could start coming. And that's why the numbers of South Asian Americans spike uh, coming that year. And if it hadn't been for that, we still might have had only 100 people allowed in every year. Wow, that's pretty crazy to think about that, you know, I, you or me could not even be here because if that law hadn't been changed, you know, because of the push from the civil rights movement, right? It's just mind boggling to think of those impacts um, that legislation had just on our community to be able to immigrate here and to have the, you know, better lives that we have, right? And it so for me, the way I really see this is that we owe uh, a debt of gratitude to um, the legacy of African-American activism, because without that, we just wouldn't be here. We would not have equal rights. Right. Um, I think about the moment um, where maybe 10 or 15 years ago, my parents were trying to buy a house uh-huh. and um, they walked into this um, open house and the person who was selling the house just kind of looked at them and then whispered to the realtor, you know, like, you know, basically, we don't want people like that in this country. And oh, wow. the, uh, my parents ended up not buying the house for uh-huh. other reasons. But just the fact that um, we have like real anti-discrimination laws that protect us in situations like that in terms of housing discrimination, mm-hmm. that's, again, part of the legacy of the civil rights movement and black activism. Wow. So, I mean, you know, on your website, um, you have posted that there were some South Asians that were, you know, helping with the civil rights movement or having some influence over it. Do you mind giving us um, a few names and a little bit of their history? Yeah, so my very, very favorite story from that time was um, two diff- uh, two professors, um, somebody named Hamid Kizilbash, who was a Pakistani professor, and Shabitri Chakrabantai, who was an Indian professor. And they were both teaching at Tougaloo College in Jackson, Mississippi in uh-huh. the mid-1960s. 
And Tougaloo College is a historically um, uh, black college. And so most of their students um, at that time were uh, were African-American. Okay. And there's something really interesting about the fact that um, Indians or Pakistanis, they were seen as not quite white, not quite black. We were kind of these in-between people. And because of our kind of ambiguous racial status, these professors, I mean, they could really advocate for the students in a way that, um, you know, they're really kind of using um, that status. So um, one story that um, uh, they've told is how they would be able to go into movie theaters where their African-American students would be allowed in and buy tickets because they were close enough to whiteness where they would actually be sold tickets in segregated theaters and then be able to actually hand those tickets off to the students who weren't able to buy them. And doing things like that actually helped um, really uh, show different forms of solidarity. Later on, Hamid Kizilbash was uh, physically assaulted. Um, Like um, he was chased while driving. Um, I think he was getting, he was pulled out of his car. because of his solidarity work with the civil rights movement. And it wasn't until a white man basically yelled, hang on, you know, he's, you know, he's basically a foreigner. He's like somebody from another country, like, don't attack him. Uh And again, in that situation, his role as an immigrant, um, in some ways, actually helped protect him. So there are things that our communities have been able to do, because we're actually, um, often as immigrants, we're neither here nor there. And in some ways, that's actually a benefit. Oh, that's a pretty interesting story, and and you have more stories on your um, on the website, correct? Secret. Do you mind telling my yeah. listeners yeah. the website link again? Uh, Black Desi Secrethistory dot org. So one of the things that for me is um, really fascinating is that from say the nineteen twenties onward, uh-huh. uh, there were actually a lot of connections between. Uh, Indian um, freedom fighters and African-American activists. And when I say Indian at this time, I'm talking about the um, India colonized by the British, so the modern-day nations of India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh. Okay. And so these colonized activists uh, who were trying to overthrow the British Empire, they, they often saw African-Americans as kind of an internally colonized people, and that there was this like connection between the two. And that made itself felt in a lot of different ways. Um, Ambedkar, for example, who wrote the, the Indian Constitution later on, um, probably the most prominent uh, Dalit um, activist of the 20th century. So when he came to Columbia University to study, um, and he was studying uh, African-American history and the history of um, Reconstruction, which is a period after the Civil War, right. when African-Americans gained some rights, but then... Um, across the South, uh, white activists actually pulled those rights back. Mm-hmm. Ambedkar was able to look at black history and go, that might happen to Dalits and a free India as well. So we need to avoid the mistakes that happened in the United States and make sure that you know we don't suffer some of the same setbacks as black activists did. So he was able, able to actually learn from the struggles of African-American activists in a very specific way around um, Dalit activism. For me, there's also... Um, uh, folks like Romina Tagore, he was writing to um, to black newspapers. Um, there's a lot of connections happening back and forth. Um, du Bois, I mean, there, there, um, Nehru, I mean, there were there was there was strong communication on both sides. And so, in 1947, when India and Pakistan gained independence, uh-huh. a lot of these um, these anti-colonial rebel freedom fighters from India, um, when they often became the heads of state of these new countries. Okay. It was this really interesting situation that black activists in the United States, they were actually seeing their 
friends and comrades who are fighting this unjust government actually win. And that victory and the road to that victory actually gave a lot of, um, it actually really kind of made uh, a lot of African-American activists, um, they gave them a sense that this is actually possible. Oh, so it gave them some hope, motivation. Exactly. Okay. And you see this connection even with, um, uh, for example, one of my very favorite stories was somebody named Bear Gruston. And okay. Bear Gruston is a black activist, a gay black activist, who um, is probably best known for his role in helping put together the 1963 March on Washington, where mm-hmm. um, Dr. Martin, Martin Luther King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. Right. So in the 1940s, um, he was jailed as a pacifist um, for opposing uh, some parts of, the, of World War II. But even while he was in jail, um, he was standing up and writing letters in support of Indian autonomy and Indian independence. Uh, he gets out of uh, he gets out of prison, and he's involved in something called the Free India Committee. And he actually starts engaging in political action, putting himself at risk of arrest, standing up for the rights of Indians, standing up for the right of of India to actually gain autonomy from the British Empire. Uh-huh. So when I think about these like solidarity activists, I mean. A, a black gay activist, civil rights activist of the 1940s, he is in some way also an Indian freedom fighter. Right. So we actually have these really strong, deep, long connections between our communities. That's crazy. And like, that's really, this is not very well known in our community. Even I didn't know about it and I came across your website and I was floored because I was like, I had no clue that this this occurred in our history. And And what's really unfortunate too is, it's very prevalent in the South Asian culture to have this anti-black racism, right? And yeah. And and I kind of want to ask you, you know, because there's so much shared history and so much shared solidarity, what can we as the South Asian community do to um better tackle this um this racism that is very prevalent within our community? So, um, the Sri Lankan American activist, uh, Sasha Vijayaratne, um, talks about this um, through a couple of different steps that our communities can take. One of the most important things is actually to learn about our own histories, um, our own experiences, both in the homeland and here, with things like race and caste and dealing with discrimination when we're new to this country, um, better relationships with institutions like the police, both back at home and here. Mm-hmm. Um to think about like our connections with say African Americans, often on the personal level, to really kind of make connections around uh, individuals, to hear stories of personal experiences, just to kind of get a sense of what that looks like. And also to like not assume that everybody in our community understands um, US history in all its details, because you know nobody gives us a book of US history the, gate, the day we get off a plane. Right. So for many of our community members, we might know, for example, that African-Americans were um, historically enslaved. But a lot of the details, a lot of what that means for, say, uh, uh, black wealth or the lack thereof, I mean, I think we don't know a lot of those details, um, how Pro operated until, you know, as recently as about a generation ago. So that's actually really important for us to understand the, the uh, bits and pieces of the African-American experience. Um, and finally, to really be thinking about this in terms of dignity and humanity, I think for a lot of us, um, especially at moments like this, we're seeing the dignity of South Asian Americans, of Muslims, of our children in schools right. being assaulted 
and we're we're seen as a foreign or terrorist or whatever you want to call that. And um, in the same way that sort of assaults our dignity, um, African Americans have been dealing with that for much longer than us. One of the, the areas that um, is particularly challenging is the idea of the model minority myth. Okay. The idea that we are these hardworking immigrants who are deserving, who are, uh, you know, we pulled up ourselves up by our bootstraps, we deserve everything that we've gotten. Right. And that's true, we have worked hard in this country. But in many cases, um, we've also had a lot of things that have been that are going for us. For many of us, we come to this country without legacies of ourselves or our, um, our ancestors having been enslaved. Um, many of us come from, have some, some degree of education, um, literacy in English, uh, caste privilege. And on the flip side, um, uh, for, for many African Americans, you know, there are these like long legacies of slavery, of Jim Crow, of systematic destruction of black wealth. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's difficult, it's problematic to be able to um, even, you know, when people say that, you know, Indian Americans or whoever else are, like, look at them, they work so hard, they're doing so well. W- a lot of times when people say that, they're actually implicitly attacking African Americans. Right. And sort of saying that if we can overcome racism, why can't they? Right, yes. And it's I really critical it. for us to be able to kind of push back and not necessarily see ourselves as magical people. But as people, you know, where we do work hard, but we also have some advantages. Yes, we and must not allow ourselves to be used as a stick to beat other communities. Right. I totally agree with you. I think that's something that's very much stated um, within our community is that oh well, look at us. We worked so hard. You know, we you know you have that that st- that story that many of our parents have told us like oh we only came with like five dollars in our pocket right and look what we've become whereas. Many Desi people, I think, are very unaware or don't care to understand and realize that the institutional racism that is prevalent within the African-American community, I mean, is, is per- it's literally everywhere. Like, you see Flint with the drinking water. You see how, like, you know, gentrification is working. You see how, um, you know, the whole um, school-to-prison pipelines that have been occurring, like, there's so many hurdles for African-Americans to cross to become successful that for most South Asians, those situations were not applicable to us. Um, and we did have advantages. And that's something our community, for some reason, fails to understand or acknowledge. And then, as you stated, goes on and berates like other minority communities. And it's not that it takes anything away from us to recognize that um other communities often uh, face much graver disadvantages than we had to go through. I mean, it doesn't say that we didn't work hard. It's just that some people have you know, more obstacles to work through. Exactly. And, you know, that's why I'm really hoping that, you know, with the project that you've been implementing and some of the books um, that you've mentioned, that we can we can start to understand that there has been a history of solidarity between us and African-Americans and that it's not something that's new. It's something that really needs to be built upon even more. Um, and that we can move forward to becoming um, partners in solidarity instead of some group that tries to berate other minorities. And uh, for me, like, I definitely think about um, the way that some of the civil rights attacks that our communities have been facing. Mm-hmm. African Americans have often been the first to experience those kinds of civil rights attacks. Um, right. 
in terms of surveillance, for example, things like that. So um, in many ways, when African-Americans feel safe, uh, when they're not discriminated against, when they don't deal with housing discrimination, um, they're kind of the canary in the coal mine. So when, when black folks are safe, we're safe too. When black folks are feel free, we feel free too. So um, our, our fates are actually really interlinked in, in ways that often we don't understand. That's very true. Well, Anirvan, thank you so much for joining us today and giving us such insightful information about the history of the South Asian community and African-American community and the amount of solidarity that, solidarity that we've had in the past. It was really, really insightful. So thank you so much. Thanks so much for including these conversations. All right, folks, that's our segment for today. I hope you enjoyed this very enlightening and fascinating interview. Uh, remember, his website is blackdcsecrethistory.org. You can check it out and read more um, about the many, many different stories Anirvan has posted about the South Asians and African Americans um, that have worked together in solidarity in America. The ones that he mentioned in this interview are just a few of the many, many people um, that have done so much. So I hope you all will continue following us um, on the Texas legislature. Again, we're posting things on all forms of social media um, using our, you know, hashtag bills the Pagolhe because a lot of these bills are pretty crazy. Some can be great, but then again, we are not really that hopeful with uh, some of the bills that do get passed. Just being straight. <laughs> all right, folks. Um, don't forget, let's get educated, let's get wiser, and let's start giving a hoot. Until next time.